BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, with more than 3 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we welcome legendary researcher Dr. Brene Brown to the Science of Success. We discuss vulnerability and learn that vulnerability is not weakness, It's not oversharing and it's not soft. We learn that even brave and courageous people are scared all of the time. We discuss the incredible power of learning to get back up when you've been knocked down, how you can stop caring about what other people think about you, and much, much more in this in-depth interview. I'm going to tell you why you've been missing out on some incredibly cool stuff if you haven't signed up for our email list yet. All you have to do to sign up is to go to successpodcast.com and sign up right on the homepage. On top of tons of subscriber-only content, exclusive access, and live Q&As with previous guests, monthly giveaways, and much more, I also created an epic free video course just for you. It's called How to Create Time for What Matters Most Even When You're Really Busy. Email subscribers have been raving about this guide. You can get all of that and much more by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage or by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222 on your phone. If you like what I do on Science of Success, my email list is the number one way to engage with me and go deeper on what I discuss on the show, including free guides, actionable takeaways, exclusive content, and much, much more. Sign up for my email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're on the go, if you're on your phone right now, it's even easier. Just text the word SMARTER That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. I can't wait to show you all the exciting things you'll get when you sign up and join the email list. In our previous episode, we discussed how to hack your brain to finally create the results you want in life. 
We took a hard look at what really drives results and the reality that knowledge and skill aren't what make you successful. The subconscious drives your behavior. That's it. You don't need any more tools to achieve your goals. You just need to change your beliefs and your subconscious set points for success, happiness, and achievement. Action is the ultimate arbiter of your success. We asked, are you taking enough of it? And how can you take more? We discussed all this and much more with our previous guest, John Asaraf. If you need a breakthrough to finally get where you want to be, listen to our previous episode. Now for our interview with Brene. Please note, this episode contains profanity. Today, we have another legendary guest on the show, Dr. Brene Brown. Brene is a research professor at the University of Houston, where she holds the Huffington Foundation Brene Brown Endowed Chair at the Graduate School of Social Work. She's the author of five number one New York Times bestsellers, The Gift of Imperfection, Daring Greatly, Rising Strong, Braving the Wilderness, and her latest book, Dare to Lead, which is the culmination of a seven-year study on courage and leadership. Brene's TED Talk, The Power of Vulnerability, is one of the top five most viewed TED Talks in the world with over 35 million views. And she's also the first researcher to have a filmed Netflix talk called The Call to Courage, which debuted in April 2019. Brene, welcome to the Science of Success. Thank you. I'm excited to talk to you. Well, we're super excited to have you on the show today. Uh, we're, we're huge, huge fans of you and your work, and we can't wait to really dig into it. To start out, I just wanted to say I love that you reprised and brought back the Teddy Roosevelt arena quote in the introduction to Dare to Lead because it's such a great quote. It so simply encapsulates your message and, and this notion that this this powerful idea that it's at the root of a vulnerability. It's not about whether you're winning or losing, but it's whether you're showing up and whether you're in the game. Yeah, it was, I wish I could take back every single instance where I said something that was like hyperbole so that when I said this, people knew it was really serious. But that quote, cha- there was my, it changed my life. There was my life before that quote, then my life after that quote, literally in a five minute span. Because I was, you know, I guess the teacher appears when you're ready, right? But I think I was so desperate. It was right after the TED Talk um, had gone kind of viral. And I was so desperate for some kind of filing system to understand the vulnerability, the fear. What do I do with the support, which was great and overwhelming, but what do I do with that 5% or 3% of criticism that's so painful? Like, I just, I needed it so bad. And so when I came across it that day, I just was like, oh, this is a complete framework for how I want to live. And it's such a great way to encapsulate a lot of your work because at the core, it shows what so many people struggle with. And I want to dig into this because you know so much about it, much more than we do, but about why people are afraid to to show up, to take action, to get out there in the world and do things because it's so easy to be criticized, to be shamed, to be, you know, to have people say negative things about you. And it stops a lot of people from from ever really showing up and starting to really be themselves and to live their lives. Yeah, I mean, just the first two stanzas, you know, it's not the critic who counts. It's not this, the man who points out how the strong person stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the person who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again and again. Like, just those stanzas, to me, are life. Like, they are 
It's about the willingness to show up and put yourself out there and be all in when you can't control the outcome. And that is everything from work to love to sports to parenting. I mean, to innovation and creativity. It's the whole, it's not the critic who counts. It's so easy to spend our lives in the cheap sheets, cheap seats and like, you know, hurl criticism and and shame and judgment at people who are trying and falling and failing. And it's so much, you know, it's so funny that one thing that has been so clear to me in the last 10 years, the kind of feedback you get from people who are in the arena in their lives is very different than the kind of feedback you get from people who have made a full-time career out of cheap seating. What is the difference in that feedback? Not all of us who are trying to live a brave life are skilled feedback givers, so I don't want to give that impression. But when I see someone who's kind of skinned up, you know, bruised knee, stretch marks on the heart, telling me, hey, I think you really screwed this up. Did you think about this? I listen because I see it as 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 a person who's also trying. But the cheap seat stuff is often delivered with paying no attention to how hard it is to put yourself out there today. And I just can't, I can't do the sideline coaching. I just, it's not, I'm not open to it. I I really am not. And I love feedback because, you know, one of the big parts of my work is I believe feedback is required for mastery of anything. And, you know, I've developed in the organization that I run here in Houston, a really vulnerable, honest, courageous feedback culture. We give feedback all the time, right away, on the spot, in a kind, respectful way, but we are very much a feedback culture. So I am a big believer in feedback, but I do believe you have to be very thoughtful about who you accept it from. I totally agree. And and coming back to the people, the perspective of the people who are in the arena versus the people who are in, as you put it, the cheap seats. It's funny because I have so many young people who are listeners of the show and I have nieces and nephews who are in high school and college and they're so scared sometimes to just take the first step. They're so scared, to, as you put it, to show up. Why are people so afraid? I think there are, I think there are a lot of reasons. And I think some of them are demographic. I think some of them are informed by race and class and gender. I mean, I think it's complex. But here's what I would say. When you think about young people, and this is my 22 years of teaching graduate students, we don't teach people how to get back up after they fall. And because we don't teach people how to rise, they never take the leap. Like, can you imagine if you didn't know how, like if you, if you physically fell and you didn't know how to get back up, you'd spend your whole life tiptoeing around. You'd spend your whole life like bracing your palms on the hood of a car when you step off the curb. Then you would follow the car with your hand until you open the door. Then you'd hold on to the oh shit handle as you tried to, you know, get into the seat. Like you would never let go of everything and just walk because your death fear would be, if I fall, I don't know how to get back up. The same thing is true in our socio-emotional world. If we don't know how to get back up after failure, disappointment, or setback, We will spend an enormous amount of energy making sure we never have to get back up. And so for me, I have a lot of bounce. Like I have a lot of bounce. And so I'm willing to take chances because I'm very secure in my ability to get back up. Because I, you know, and I think it's if even if you think about going back really to young, young folks, even if you think about letting kids experience adversity. 
And so one of the conversations my husband and I had very early on when we were brand new parents is we both come from like, you know, divorced parents, a lot of really hard, hard shit, stuff that we would never want to subject our kids to. And then at the same time, we both really respect our own and each other's resilience. So, and he, did did I just say he was a pediatrician? He's a pediatrician. So we have a lot of parenting conversations. And so the big finding we came to was we need to let, there's a line between adversity and trauma. And we need to let our kids experience adversity, not so much trauma. That kind of sets us back. So I think having experiences with adversity and knowing how to get back up makes people braver because they're willing to take a chance. Such a powerful analogy and really shines light on this notion. I love the example of walking around with the fear of never being able to get back up. Because it so clearly highlights the the idea that the truly important skill set is not whether you're perfect at walking, but it's just learning how to get up over and over again. I mean, that's it. It's, you know, I don't even know who said the quote, but someone has a great quote that says, the most important number is not the number of times that you fall, but the number of times you fall plus, you know, the time, the number of times you get back up. Like that is so, I know it's like, you know, cheesy, like cue the Rocky music or whatever, but It's just true. And so what we know, I mean, this is for me, to be honest, Matt, if I think about all of my work over the last 20-something years, I don't think that I'm more proud of anything than the work that we, the research that we did on courage and the fact that courage is teachable, observable, and measurable. It's four skill sets. But one of the key four skill sets is learning how to get back up. You know, the the, you know, the first big skill set is the ability to be vulnerable. We call it rumbling with vulnerability. The second one is really knowing what your values are and how to live into them because people who are not super clear and, t- you know, just very gritty clear about their values and what those behaviors look like are not as brave. They don't risk the fall. The next one is braving trust, learning how to trust yourself and other people appropriately. And then the last one is learning to get back up. So we can teach these things. But I got to tell you, as I step back and think about the way that we parent today, not everybody, but a growing part of parenting, I think, unfortunately, the way schools are set up, we're not teaching courage skills. I couldn't agree more. And in many ways that the root of that idea is what underpins our entire project with the science of success as well. I want to dig into all of these different ideas. So let's start at a high level with, with courage. What is courage? When you say that, when you talk about it, how do you, how do you think about how we define courage? It's interesting because I don't have a definition for courage. That's any different than definition, data-driven definition for vulnerability. And we define vulnerability as the willingness to show up and be seen when you can't control the outcome. And the definition of vulnerability as a construct itself is it's the emotion we experience during times of uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. And I spent like probably, I don't know, maybe five years, like, because I spend 90% of my time in organizations, big, you know, Fortune 10, big Silicon Valley companies teaching courageous leadership skills. And so... I spent so many years trying to convince people of a relationship between courage and vulnerability. And then it became, it got very clear to me one day when I was at Fort Bragg working with special forces. And I asked a really simple question, which was, 
because everyone thinks vulnerability is weakness. Everyone thinks that it's oversharing, everything's it's you know, it's soft. So I asked this question. If vulnerability is uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure, give me a single example of courage in your life, on the field, off the field, other troops, you know, your other soldiers. Give me a single example of courage that you've witnessed or experienced yourself that didn't involve vulnerability, that didn't involve uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. And there was just kind of just silence. And you could see these troops, they were just shifting in their seats and uncomfortable. And a couple of them started putting their heads in their hands. And then finally, one guy stood up and said, ma'am, there is no courage without vulnerability. Three tours, there is no courage without vulnerability. And so I think any conversation that we start around what is courage is it's the willingness to put yourself out there when you can't control how it's going to go. And if you're putting yourself out there and you can kind of control or predict the outcome, you're not being that brave. You're probably doing good stuff, maybe, but you're not being courageous. I just got goosebumps when you said that. Such a powerful definition. And it's something that's so important. It's such a needed message in in today's world, today's society. I feel like so many people stick to their what what's comfortable and what's safe and they're so afraid to step into uncertainty and to step into risk how do yeah, we- i mean it's the special forces soldier but it's also you know the guy sitting across from the person he loves and you know thinking shit man i want to say i love you should i wait to say it maybe i should wait for her to say it first okay you know what i'm going to be brave i love you that's also courage and vulnerability. Yeah, that's a great point. It, it's not, it, it spans the spectrum, right? It's these, it's totally. these everyday moments of life. And it, it goes all the way back out to these heroic achievements in the military and beyond. Yeah. I mean, it is, the, it's the CEO of the startup looking for funding and being turned down, you know, 50 times, it's the 51st time. That's brave. Like, that's courageous. That's vulnerable. And so this mythology that vulnerability is weakness, it's just there, you know, we just crossed the 400,000 pieces of data mark, which was a big mark for us. There is zero evidence, zero, that vulnerability is weakness. It is by far our most accurate measure of courage. And in fact, we have a daring leader assessment. We put together an assessment for courageous leadership. And we worked with MBA and EMBA students at Wharton, at UPenn, Kellogg at Northwestern, and the Jones School at Rice. And we spent three years putting together this instrument, making sure it's valid, reliable. And basically, it's as simple as this. I can tell you how brave you are by measuring your capacity for vulnerability. It makes perfect sense because if you're afraid to be vulnerable, by definition, you're you're coming at that from a place of fear and scarcity. Yeah. And I mean, it's, and it's, I love the fact that you just said everyday scenarios, everyday situations. Like I have to be, yeah, I didn't know how this podcast was going to go. I don't know, but I'm going to get on it and give it a shot. And, you know, and, and if I screw it up, it's. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, 
you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. It's going to be out to tons of people, but it's saying something to your roommate like, hey, dude, you can't keep leaving your shit everywhere. It's not working. Like it's sitting down with your boss and saying, hey, I I understand I messed that up, but the way you're giving me feedback, I can't hear what you're saying. So I want to learn from you. But like when you're yelling and screaming and pounding your fist, that doesn't work. One of my favorite quotes of yours, and I'm paraphrasing this a little bit, but it's this idea that vulnerability is not as hard or scary or dangerous as getting to the end of your life and asking yourself, what if I had shown up? For me, and for the people I've interviewed that are late in life, I cannot imagine a more terrifying thing. I do not want to look back. There's two things There's two things that are really important to me when I look back on my life and my career. The first one is I do not want to look back and wonder, what if? What if I would have said yes? What if I would have tried that? What if I would have said I love you first? And the other thing is I want to be able to look back and know without question, that I contributed more than I criticized. Because criticism is so easy. It's not vulnerable. It's not brave. Contribution, super brave and hard because everyone will have comments and thoughts about what it is. And there's there's very minimal risk of failure in criticizing. That's why you have the Teddy Roosevelt, it's not the critic accounts. Just not it. I'm not, it's, that's, for me, it's really not the critic accounts. Like, so... If you leave some kind of really shitty tweet, you know, and your avatar is an egg or like the little icon or some movie star and your handle isn't your real name, useless to me. Block or mute forever, whichever is easiest for me. Like, I, I, But if you leave a really hard thing for me to hear, but it's respectful and your name's there and your picture's there, there's a 95% chance if I see it. I'm going to come back and say, tell me more. I'm curious. Why do you think that? I'm interested. Can we dig in? I might DM you and say, this is a really interesting point. I mean, someone made a point about something that I said in daring, you know, in, bra- in braving the wilderness. I was talking about Black Lives Matter and why I think it's important. And I was talking about the dehumanization of people. And a woman said, you know, there's something about the way you frame this sentence that felt privileged and tone deaf to me. And, you know, at first I kind of recoiled. I'm like, oh my God, I'm out here supporting this stuff that like, I'm, you know, taking a lot of heat for, and then yet I'm still tone deaf and it's, you know, and then I was, but I was like, tell me more. We went, we had this long conversation on our DMs on Twitter and I called my agent and said, stop the presses. Is that a real thing? Cause I needed, I need to change something. I wrote something that was in a privileged blind spot for me. I need to change it. I can make it better. And they stopped him and changed it. Random House did. So feedback, even hard feedback, constructive feedback, difficult feedback, is not the same as being a critic your whole life and never risking vulnerability. It's just not brave. So how do we start to step into vulnerability or as you called it, rumble with vulnerability? 
the answer is pretty counterintuitive because here's when I spent the last seven years studying leadership, and I mean talking to everyone, leaders from everyone from, you know, Pixar to special forces, from oil and gas companies in, you know, Singapore to people who work for the White House, like across the board, talking to Fortune 10 CEOs, really asking what is the future of leadership? And so it was the first time I'd ever done a study where the answer saturated across. There was not a single participant who said something different than, oh my God, the future of leadership is courageous leadership. We've got to have braver people and braver cultures. We're facing too many geopolitical, environmental, just technology. Everything is shifting so fast that if we don't have courageous people leading, we're not, companies won't make it. Organizations won't make it. Governments won't make it. And so what was interesting is my hypothesis was wrong. So I, I assumed that the greatest barrier to, to what I call daring leadership or creative le- um, courageous leadership was fear. So as we started you know, moving into this, what we call selective coding, I went back to some of these leaders and said, wow, okay, we're hearing it's brave leadership. We hear the only people who will be standing in the next five years in really meaningful leadership capacities are courageous people building courageous cultures how do you stay out of fear? And these people looked at me like I was crazy. They were like, what? And I said, well, you're, you know, you're a daring leader. How do you stay brave all the time? And they're like, I'm afraid all the time. I don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, what? But you're a brave leader. They're like, well, you can call me, you can put me on whatever list you want to, but I'm scared all the time. So as we started digging in and digging deeper into the data and interviewing more people about that, what I learned was it's not fear that gets in the way of us being brave. It's armor. Armor gets in the way of us being brave. Armor gets in the way of us being vulnerable. And so the difference is, let's say you and I, let's say you and I are both leaders, right? And we're both on a scale from one to ten. Five. We're we're both scared five. So you're Matt's a five scared leader, and I'm a I'm a five scared leader. But as a daring leader, Matt, you're aware of your armor, and you you choose to be vulnerable. And show up and take it off, even though it's really seductive to put it on. I, on the other hand, am not aware about how I use armor to show up. So I stay in my armor. So the first thing we have to do is understand, I mean, you can't do any of this without self-awareness. So the first thing is understand what is your go-to armor? How do you self-protect when you're in uncertainty, risk, and feel emotionally exposed? So for me, it's perfectionism. It's I get emotionally intense and can talk over people. This is not mine particularly, but some people, they use cynicism as armor. Some people, and this is not mine either, but I mean, trust me, I have a shit ton of it, but these just happen to not be mine. A lot of people have to be the knower. So when they're vulnerable and feel exposed, they become the knower and it's more important for them to be right than get it right. So we have to figure out, I'm a pleaser. That's definitely mine. And I know when I'm wearing my pleasing, good girl, make everyone around me happy armor, because the armor weighs 100 pounds, but the resentment weighs 1,000 pounds. Like I become a really resentful, angry person. And so where we start with learning how to rumble with vulnerability is examining what myths were we raised believing? Were we raised believing its weakness? Were we raised believing that it's oversharing? How were we raised? And then the second question is, what armor do I use to self-protect? Am I the blustery, posturing, tough guy? Am I the knower? Am I the cynic? It's all bullshit. None of it matters. What is our armor? Does that make sense? 
That totally makes sense. I love the little quip about how the armor weighs 100 pounds, but the resentment weighs 1,000 pounds. I mean, this is the thing. Even if, you know, if the people listening are between 25 and 35, there's a difference between a 25-year-old and a 35-year-old. And the difference is when you're 25, I have a 20-year-old daughter, and I'm like, man, if you can get this now, I don't even know what you'll be able to accomplish. The difference is when we're in our 20s and even our early 30s, we are still convinced that the armor serves us. We're still fresh off adolescence. I mean, they moved adolescence to like 24 now or something around brain development. We still believe the armor serves us. But by the time you get to 35, 38, 40, for sure, then you're in kind of midlife. And then that's when the universe is like, "Mm, the armor, it's killing you. And the drinking and the working and the achieving and acquiring, none of it will ever take away the pain that that armor causes you. And so I think really, if you look at kind of the people that we're talking to probably today, this is such an opportunity in your life to figure out the armor and to really start using some loving kindness and some self-compassion to talk to yourself about how it's not serving you anymore. You touched on this a little bit, but what does it look like when you start to take the armor off? And maybe, and the, and I think this might be a good place specifically to look at this because people pleasing and that kind of stuff is also something that I, that I really struggle and deal with as well. And so maybe since that's something we both struggle with, how would you think about starting to take that armor off? I think it's some self-exploration for sure. And I think it's about always understanding, especially when we were young. And I would say young is like, you know, five or six to probably early 20s, how did it serve us? Like, how did the, like, let's look, we're both people pleasers. So are we both use people pleasing as armor? I wouldn't tie it to my identity or your identity, but I'd say it's, it's armor for both of us, as you tell me. How did it serve us? What did we gain by it? How, how did it help us get what we want or need or think we deserved? And what has been the cost of it? Like, what, what is the cost for that? armor? What is the cost of not saying what's really on our mind? What's the cost of taking care of everyone around us at our own expense? Like I saw this quote in the feed. We do a bunch of training for this a group of African-American th- therapists called Black Therapist Rock. And they had this quote in their feed the other day, which was like, I could barely read it. I showed it to my sisters and we were all like, ugh. Because it said, when you work so hard to make everyone comfortable and keep the peace on the outside, you rage a war internally within yourself. Like, and I, I just thought, God, that's so true. Like, it's not my job to make sure everyone's getting along here. It's not my job to make sure no one's disappointed with me. Like, on my 50th birthday, Oprah, Oprah Winfrey gave me this incredible advice. She said, if you think you're going to do what you love and do work that makes a difference and never piss off or disappoint someone, you don't understand. And so I think for me, taking the, uh, the, the armor off for me, was about really getting to a place where I did not, I do not calculate my value based on what other people think of me. And my people pleasing is kind of the bright side of manipulation. And I would much rather be not liked and respected and trusted to be truthful than I would to be liked. It just doesn't serve me anymore. So every time I make a decision, still, I have to think, 
am I doing this because it's what I really – and first of all, I had to spend five years figuring out what it was that I really wanted. I didn't even know. Like, I wasn't even sure because I was so used to saying yes to make sure everyone was happy and, and thought I, you know, patted me on the head. So I think the, the thing was what it is – you know, I think where you start is how has that been serving me? What's the cost? And what am I afraid of? What, what's my fear if I stop doing this? Yeah, I think those are some great, really, really powerful questions and uh, a really excellent framework to start to take that armor off. I'm curious, how did you come to a place? Because I think many people would like to feel or say or think that they don't calculate their value based on what others think of them. But the reality is that, that oftentimes we do. How do we, how did you personally, or how do we, as me, the audience, et cetera, move past that or move beyond that or break through that? I mean, I had a therapist and a big ass breakdown. Like that would be the moving through plan. <laughs> it's, okay. it's not, it's not good. I mean, like if you think you can do this work on your own, you don't understand the nature of the work. Like we were, we're not neurobiologically hardwired to figure this stuff out by ourselves. And so whether it's, you know, a therapist, a group, a men's group, friends that you can talk to, like you have to think through this stuff aloud around people you trust where there's a lot of psychological safety and you have to think through, like you have to think through, I mean, it's really hard because I wrote an article on my website about, I just celebrated 23 years of sobriety in May and I wrote about an exchange that I had with my therapist. And, you know, we saw each other, I think I saw her for a couple of years, maybe two years, three years. And I remember one day going into her and saying, man, I need something for the anxiety. I need something, you know, the people pleasing is out of control. The anxiety is out of control. I'd been sober at that point, I think for 10 years, I'd just given up flour and sugar. So I was like, I, I, I gotta have something. Like I got no fallback here. No beer, no muffin, no, you know, I'm trying not to, you know, work 60 hours a week. Like I got nothing. And she's like, what do you want me to give you? And I said, something for anxiety or something. And she said, say more. And I said, you know, I'm I'm like a turtle. I'm in a turtle without a shell. I've taken off all the shells. I'm vulnerable turtle, but I'm in a briar patch. Everything hurts. Everywhere I move pokes me and hurts me. And she's like, maybe we should just talk about getting out of the briar patch instead of like trying to find a new shell. And I was like, yeah, the fucking briar patch. That's your advice to me. Like that's all you got. And she's, and, and then I remember like, that was such a important metaphor for me to share because I think no one wants to burn out, but everyone's living like they're on fire. No one wants to hurt or have to carry around a ton, you know, the armor or the shell, but everyone's living in a briar patch. Like, I think this process involves really reflecting on who who am I around? Like, I always call that like the mirror perspective. Like, look at who you're hanging out with. Do those people reflect your values, who you want to be? how you want to show up in the world? Are those people brave with their lives? You got to assess like who you're hanging out with. You got to assess what it is you want from life. Are you clear about what you want? Are you, And if you're not clear about what you want, and first of all, if you're clear about what you want, you're 25, that's weird to me. And then I think the big thing that I tell even leaders, again, across the globe, is you can replace the armor with something that helps you. And that's curiosity. You know, the one thing that really deeply brave people share in common is insatiable curiosity. 
They're curious about themselves. They're curious about the world they live in. They're curious around the people around them. They're curious about how to be better. And so curiosity. So I think for the people listening, it's get curious about how am I showing up? Is it serving me? And am I self-protecting in a way that's keeping me small? I mean, that's the thing about armor is it prevents you from growing into your gifts. Some really great points. And and one thing that you kind of casually tossed out that I thought was really important was even this notion that you're in your 20s, if you're younger and you're not clear about what you want to do with your life, how you want to define and live your life, that's okay. And yes. I feel like there's so much pressure in our society today to have everything sorted out. But the reality is that's not really the case. And it's all right to to be figuring things out. Yes. I finished my bachelor's degree when I was 29, you know, 29. And I spent the time until I was 29 doing a myriad of things from bartending and waiting tables for six years, taking, you know, customer service calls in Spanish, uh, hitchhiking through Europe. And I learned more about empathy and vulnerability and shame and the things I study in those periods of time as I did in doctoral classes, studying, you know, multivariate analysis of social, you know, emotional variables, like, like nothing is wasted. I told my daughter when she went to school, I said, if you already know what you want to be, I'm not paying for college. Cause what, you know, cause we'll find some kind of vocational training or something. And she's like, Oh my God, mom, you're killing me. It's so cringeworthy to not know what you want to be when, you know, it's too awkward. Everyone, you know, during freshman orientation knows what they want to be. And I'm like, what does everyone want to be? Everyone wants like a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. I'm like, yeah, those are some of the most miserable 30 year olds I've ever interviewed in my life. Like I'm giving you the opportunity to study Latina feminism in the middle, you know, whatever, the middle, whatever, middle ages. I don't know if there was such a thing, but probably, you know, I'm giving you a chance to take STEM classes and liberal arts classes and take classes that may make no sense because, you know, it's this Howard Thurman quote that I live by. And Howard Thurman was like a, a civil rights activist, a theologian. And he said, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs is more people who've come alive. Like nothing is wasted and it's the gifts that you can give us are an order of magnitude bigger if you are in your power doing what you love. A great quote and and a really important message and something that the listeners sometimes I, I think need to hear because it's so easy to get caught up in the belief that everything has to be perfect and defined and we have to be on this trajectory, especially in today's world at such a young age. But I want to I want to change or really come back to something that we talked about at the very beginning, because I want to get one or two concrete strategies for for developing this skill set as well, which is the ability to get back up. We talked about how important that is, how that's a hundred times more important than than learning how to walk. What are some of the tools or strategies that you've uncovered for helping get back up when you fall down? Yeah, there's a lot of raw material to getting back up, but there's one piece of gold, one piece that you could listen to right now and it could change your life over five minutes. And that is understanding the neurobiology of falling, that when something hard happens, when we experience setback, disappointment, heartache, our brain is wired for one thing above all else and that's survival. And when something hard happens, the brain goes really limbic and it's like, oh my God, 
how do I protect you? How do I protect you? And it's not just like, you know, it's not like a bear is attacking you. I mean, like, it's like you and I work together and I come out of a meeting and I go, and you're my boss. I'm like, Hey, good meeting, Matt. And you look at me like that sucked. And you just keep walking in your office. Like that's going to trigger something in our mind to go into survival mode. Like, oh my God, my boss just said that sucked and shrugged his shoulders and walked into his office. Like, so what happens is because the brain is wired that, we know now that the brain completely reads story. I mean, like a, like a computer reading an old punch card, like the brain reads story. It understands the narrative pattern of beginning, middle, and end. And it craves a story to understand when something hard is happening what is happening? I don't know how to protect you. So if we give the brain a story, we get a chemical reward, a, a calm reward, a, oh, okay, I understand what's happening reward. And it's very seductive and necessary and helpful for us. The problem is that the brain rewards us for a story, regardless of the accuracy of the story. And the brain loves a story that if I said to myself, I wonder what's wrong with Matt. He looks pretty pissed off. I guess maybe he's having a hard day or maybe, I don't know. The brain's like, that's a shit story. You get nothing. But if I'm like, oh my God, Matt hates me. I knew he hated me. He's never trusted me. He's never liked me. I've done something in that meeting that pissed him off. Oh my God, I'm in trouble. Oh my God, I'm going to get fired. Then the brain's like, got it. We all, you know, Matt, dangerous, bad, against us, not safe. So what the most resilient research participants found that we found have in common and the sentence that can change your life really is the story I'm telling myself. That when we fall, when we're hurt, when we're pissed, when we're, when we, you know, lose something or we're disappointment, disappointed, we fail at something at work. If we can challenge the narrative, our, the narratives that we make up, and I can go to you and knock on your door and be like, hey, Matt, you have a second? Yeah, what's up? Hey, I said, have a good day. And you looked really pissed and you were like, that sucked. The story I'm telling myself right now is something happened in that meeting that we, you and I need to clean up, that you're pissed off at me about something. And you look at me and you go, no, man, no, 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 not at all. I'm just like, I cannot believe these nine o'clock meetings, instead of being done at 10, are over at 11 and 12. I mean, it just sucks. It's ridiculous. Like, I have, you know, spin class every day at 1030. I'm missing my spin class third time in a row. I'm like, oh, what about the part where you hate me and are going to, you know, like the stories we tell ourselves are what keep us flat on the arena ground, mired in blood and sweat and dust. It's the narrative. Here's how that works. You know, I mean, it's, I, I use it every time Steve and I have a fight. The story I'm telling myself I use it with the people at work all the time. Like I just had a conversation with our CFO recently where I was like, oh my God, I think these, we were trying to negotiate this, a big partnership. And I said, I think they're going to pull out of the deal. And he's like, what'd you hear? And I said, I didn't hear anything, but that, you know, the story I'm making up is they've had the red line now and they're not getting back to us with the contract red line. And he's like, they've had the red line for 30 minutes. It's 60 pages. And he's like, why are you making up stories? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I guess I'm in some fear and scarcity about this. And he's like, okay, well, keep checking out the stories with me because that's a crazy ass story. And I was like, okay, got it. Steve, my husband, look, the story I'm making up right now is that you really do want to go. You're just pissed off because you don't think I want to go. And he goes, no, to be honest with you, I don't want to, you know, like, here's a great thing. Hey, 
Brene, I've got a meeting at the hospital tonight. It's a dinner and a CEU, continuing education. You can bring partners, but you don't really have to go. And then I would go like, "Mm, fine, I don't want to go. He's like, why are you being like that? I'm just saying, I know you've got a lot going on. You have to go, no, it's fine. If you don't want me to go, I'm not, you know, whatever. Now it's like, hey, there's a thing tonight. And do you want to go? Partners are invited. When you say you don't want you don't want to go, I'm making up a story that you don't want me to go. No, I just know you're busy. Okay, great. Like this is the stories we make up and our ability to reality check them completely predict our level of balance and resilience. Are we even aware of them? Are we brave enough to check them out? And can we find a a narrative pattern? Like all of my stories that I make up always come back to I'm not enough and I'm disappointing people, which is like, you know, my, the bane of my existence. That's, That's my work for this lifetime. So if people could start thinking the story I'm telling myself, the story I'm making up right now. We would probably use it a hundred times a day in this office. That's a great tool and something that you can start implementing right away. Yes. It's well, so powerful. Yeah, that's amazing. For listeners, and you might have this this might actually be the answer to the question, but but for listeners who have been listening to this who want to start somewhere, who want to begin implementing, we talked about so many important themes and ideas in this conversation. What would be one action item or step that they could take? right away to start being more vulnerable or to start getting back up or to start implementing some of the themes that we've talked about today? I mean, I think you could go and the Daring Leadership Assessment's free online. You could go to BreneBrown.com. It's in our Dare to Lead hub. You could take that. It gives you a pretty lengthy printout of the four skill sets of, of courage, vulnerability, rising skills, trusty skills and value skills and kind of tells you where your strengths are, where your opportunities for growth are. It's a very quick kind of thing to do. I think, you know, a lot of this work that I do is very psychoeducational. The psychology part is you got to do some self-examination and some self-work, but the education piece is you've got to learn more. You, we don't, I think one of the biggest compliments I get after I give a talk is I already knew everything you said but I didn't have any of the words for it. And so I think educating ourselves on what is vulnerability, what isn't vulnerability. I think if you are, if you're trying to get braver at work, I think dare to lead is a really great, a great place to start. If it's about personal and work, the first place I try to especially start to explore, you know, shame, vulnerability, and courage in both men and women is daring greatly. So I think reading, I mean, when we go into a place to do culture change work, we always start with book reads or TED Talks or something that ground people in language that they can use to talk about what they're experiencing. And shared language is the root of change. And so if you're with your partner or a friend and you watch a sh- you watch the TED Talk or the Netflix special together and say – I thought this was really good. I thought this part was kind of bullshit. I hear some language that was really helpful. I think that's how we see change happening. But language is absolutely a prerequisite for change. Love the point about shared vocabulary. It's so important to have a common framework of words and ideas that you can use because it really helps shape conversations. 
for listeners who want to find out more about you, the TED Talk, the Netflix special, the books, all of the amazing things that you're that you're working on, what is the best place for them to do that online? Yeah, I think the best place to find everything is brenebrown.com. It's just B-R-E-N-E-B-R-O-W-N.com. And one thing I will point out is after we finished the research for Dare to Lead, we decided this is important. Let's give everything away. So there's a Dare to Lead hub that has a downloadable free companion workbook, the Daring Leader Assessment, a glossary, uh, cards that you can download for when you're giving and receiving hard feedback that just have five or six language tips to use and don't use, a daring feedback checklist. Like we just made everything free and downloadable. So have at it. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure to include all of those resources in the show notes at successpodcast.com. Brene, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're truly an inspiration. We're huge fans of you and your work. And, and this is a phenomenal conversation. So many powerful ideas. I laughed. I got goosebumps. It was, it was awesome. Really, really enjoyed having you on here. Thank you so much, Matt. I'm a big fan. So I'm, it was really fun to talk to you and have a, do this in person or at least by computer. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or If you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Success.